Hello and welcome to Try Talking Sport, hosted by me, Joanne Murphy. Whether you are an athlete, adventurer, endurance enthusiast or simply have an interest in sport, you've come to the right place for inspiration, encouragement, motivation and a little bit of entertainment. Now, I don't know about you, but it feels like life is getting back to normal somewhat. There is certainly a hive of activity both on and offline and some good news for the endurance world with events in Ireland and the UK getting the green light to go ahead over the coming weeks and months. Whilst we wait with bated breath, fingers and toes crossed in the hope that planned events can go ahead, they will undoubtedly look and feel very different to what we are used to. But the return to club training and indeed racing is a welcome progression for everyone involved. There are, of course, some events that simply will not be able to go ahead and will fall victim to COVID-19 despite the best efforts of race directors and stakeholders alike, which is very unfortunate. But hopefully those events will be back once again in 2021, delivering exceptional experiences for their athletes. There has been plenty of action and some record-breaking performances in Ireland over the past couple of weeks, with some names synonymous with cycling in Ireland taking on epic challenges and completely smashing them. Joe Barr, ultra-endurance cyclist, set a world record for cycling from Malinhead to Mizzenhead and back to Malinhead at the start of July, covering 738 miles in 44 hours and 15 minutes, breaking the previous record by 4 hours and 23 minutes. Ronan McLaughlin, a household name in Irish cycling, set a new Irish record for Everesting last Sunday in Donegal, climbing Memore Gap 64 times in a time of 8 hours and 9 minutes, beating the previous Irish record by over 2 hours. The time was ratified by Hells 500 as the fifth fastest Everesting time worldwide, catapulting McLaughlin into the mix of an impressive list of international riders who have risen to the challenge in supercharged time. Graham Mackin, a previous guest of the podcast, was meant to be competing as a solo rider in Race Across America this year. Not wanting to put his training to waste, he completed a double Everest attempt this past weekend on his local hill of Tara, climbing the hill 250 times, becoming the first Irish person to complete this impressive double climbing challenge. Well done to all three riders and their support crew in completing these epic cycling adventures. I can't wait to see what's next on their challenge calendars. Now to today's episode of the podcast with Irish elite triathlete Russell White from Bambridge. Russell has been on an incredible journey in sport since his first foray into swimming as a young boy, pursuing a passion for hockey at a high level for a number of years before literally taking the plunge into triathlon and never looking back since. He entered a local triathlon as a break from competitive swim training and won the race, igniting an interest in the sport that would see him travel the world, towing the start line of numerous races, mixing it up with some of the best known names in the sport of triathlon. For the past couple of years, Russell has been training and racing all over the globe in pursuit of an Olympic dream. With multiple podiums and top finishes in races across the world, the two-time Commonwealth Games athlete gives us an insight into his life on the road, pursuing his passion for his chosen sport in this insightful episode. Injuring his collarbone whilst in the USA just before COVID-19 restrictions came into effect in Ireland, this injury was undoubtedly a setback to his training. But if it was to happen, it happened at the best time as the world almost stopped turning and he could focus on recovery and rest for body and mind without the pressure of chasing precious Olympic qualification points. Spending time at home in Ireland over the past few months was not something he expected to happen when setting out his plans for this year, but he has embraced the return home, his recovery and of course his return to training on the local roads at home in Banbridge. Enjoy the episode. 
chatting with Russell. He's at home in Bambridge, enjoying a lovely cup of tea, I think that is what he has yep. in front of him. Russell, thanks a million for taking time out from your schedule to join us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Russell, before we get into chatting about your background in sport, you have just come off the back of an injury that saw you come off your bike just as COVID hit and you fractured your collarbone. What happened? Well, I guess it was all at the start of this lockdown. Um, I think it's about 17 weeks yesterday, give or take a week or so. So it was just before St. Patrick's Day. Um, and I was still in Florida. I was with James Edgar and Con Doherty. We were out there just planning to do races. There was still, I think the day it happened, we were supposed to be racing in Sarasota in Florida. But that race had got cancelled that week and we would change flights and we were just about to come home on the Monday. So just as normal athletes, we wanted to go out for a uh, long Sunday ride. And yeah, just sort of three, three and a half hours in on the road leading into the house, maybe less than 500 meters from the front door. We went to sprint for a sign and whether, I don't know for certain, but it's either, at the time I thought the chain came off, but um, when I actually took the bike out of the, the bag, the whole chain stay had snapped. So, and I sort of took all the brunt force hitting the ground and then the bike didn't really hit the ground that much. So whether the chain stay snapped and pulled the chain off or the, the chain came off and the chain stay snapped, I'll never know. But I hit the ground pretty hard. Just knew straight away that I broke the collarbone. And um, thankfully, the boys were there. And even Petra, member TI staff, she lived on the same road. And um, she was out there visiting family. And then they were so good to sort of take me to NE and get me sorted and patched up. And it was a bit of a whirlwind sort of. The flight home before all the borders closed were, was within 24 hours of breaking the collarbone. So it was a mad dash to get sorted and get home. Holy moly. So it came at probably the worst possible time, but also the best possible time, considering that you should be, if the world was turning as it was this time yeah. last year, you should be, you know, potentially on the way to uh, the Olympics. Yeah. The way everything's played out, it's not that it's been a bonus, but it if I, an athlete had ever asked for an injury, it's in the history of sport. This is this is one of the times. Like, even you know, my initial thing that I kept saying was like, I knew I was going to be out of the water straight away. So like, but the fact that nearly everybody in the world wasn't able to get into a swimming pool either, like that's unheard of. You would you would never have thought that breaking a collarbone. But um, yeah, even if it would have been a lot more stressful, maybe the frame had a crack in it. Um, and if I'd have been racing that day and sprinted out of the saddle, it might have cra um, cracked and I might have took more people down in a, a more important race and it could have been an even different story. So, But the way it's played out, haven't lost any sort of points, any big races. Um, the world shut down, which was a big bonus and um, points are frozen and I'm still in the Olympic simulation. So um, just have to see how it plays out between now and next July. And how is the injury healing? Really good. Um, I didn't get it operated on, um, which was nice, I guess. It was sitting quite good for a collarbone, but I was offered I, I could have went private if I wanted to because if you give them money, they'll operate on you kind of thing. But at the same time, anyone that I went to advised that it didn't really need operated on and being in a hospital at this moment in time is the last place you want to be. 
even if it was to pick up an infection afterwards. So we just sort of kept it in the sling for six weeks and it healed really quick and mobilities came back good. And as I say, it's nearly maybe 17 weeks. So I guess you have to stop milking it and just get on with it. <laughs> I see uh, from your Instagram, you're back on the bike and you've been doing a bit of running as well. So you are getting back into training properly yeah. after the crash. Yeah, training's um, coming back pretty good at the minute. Um, I'm happy with even the shape that I've came in, came back to post-injury. Started to do, I've got a one of the paddling pools that I think you talked to Con about. So I've been doing that to sort of build it up and even just... At the start for me, it was even just sculling and getting mobility back in the arm. And that that was nice that it would have been a bit more daunting trying to have to get myself in open water just for a short period of time to try and get my arm moving. So it was nice to have that. And then sort of as the weather has picked up and um, I have been able to swim, I'm sort of a bit more open water the past couple of weeks. That's been good. And then bike and run. The bike sort of kept my sanity, even Zwift and different things and being on the turbo. It was the one thing that I could do the most. Um, even when I was in the sling, I was on the bike. After maybe two, four weeks, I was back on the bike, just even sitting, just for something to do, like lockdown, stuck in the house, not leaving. So it was really good to have. So, yeah, I can't complain, really. The training's picked up pretty quickly. I think there was a big, huge um, spike in sales of paddling pools across Ireland and the UK when lockdown came in and then athletes panicked about being able to um, to swim. That and turbo trainers. Yeah. Oh, the some of the sports industries have really benefited from this. Just even the obscure things, just even like bands for swimming were, were hard to find on Amazon or anything. So... There was definitely a spike in some obscure equipment. Yeah, that and kettlebells, I think, as well. You were impossible yeah. to get in places. But I want to come right back, Russell, and talk about your journey in sport, really to where we are today. From from a youngster, your involvement in sport, how you first stepped onto the playing field or maybe stepped into the pool. I would have always followed my sister. She's three and a half years older and she was always a swimmer. But even before that, um, my mom had broke her tailbone when she was pregnant with me and got two discs removed afterwards. And um, the doc, the doctor was like, the best thing you can do is just get in the water, non-weight burn, and just sort of to get back into things. So I guess my mom just at home with two kids, she had to bring us two to the pool with her. My sister Rebecca then sort of enjoyed it and went to the local swim club and I just sort of was that three years behind, just followed everything she did, moved to the local swim club in Bambridge, and then even when we were sort of 11, after our 11 plus up here, we focused on getting that done, and then she moved to Lisburn, which was a bigger swim club, and I did the same thing, waited till I was 11, and then followed her to Lisburn. So I was I was doing that, swimming sort of probably seriously from 11 sort of at Lisburn when it was a bit more of a competitive club Bambridge was maybe only swimming once a week and Lisburn sort of had more sessions through the week and then that was basically how I got into the swimming I went to Bambridge Academy which would have been a big hockey school and I was playing hockey alongside the swimming sort of from 11 as well playing for Ulster under 16s and and trials for Ulster in Ireland under 16s and um, Ulster under 18s so that sort of way, I wasn't really doing much running, but I was doing it through the hockey. And then I guess just before I was leaving school, I thought that the swimming really wasn't going where I wanted it to go and just tried triathlon for fun back in. I just 
did a domestic one at the very tail end of 2009. And then it's just been a bit of a whirlwind since then, triathlon wise. Because I, I did see on a post on, on Facebook this week, and the listeners will think I was stalking you on Instagram and <laughs> Facebook, 10 years to the day that you did your first ITU race. 4th of July, so it was um, European Championships in Athlone in 2010. I'm sure a lot of the listeners will have remembered Athlone hosting the European Champs, and it was an amazing experience to race at home and have that sort of as my starting point in triathlon was it was a huge bonus but I guess I'd maybe triathlon Ireland had a talent identification program at the time and um, I went down I think it was around Halloween of 2009 or maybe even closer to Christmas and I nearly didn't hear till the sort of January of that I was selected and and that type of thing and I, at the time I was doing my A-levels so when I found out, I got on the squad, and that was, I guess, January 2010. And the only race that I'd done then between that, here and that in January, was the Finglas Triathlon out of the NSC, I think. And I was first junior and third or fourth overall. And I just got told in the day that I was going to race European juniors in Ireland. So it was, it was an opportunity that probably, with such lack of experience, nobody else would have got. But... The fact that we had a championships in Ireland, triathlon Ireland were boosting the sort of talent identification program and the juniors and getting us through. And then they had picked that race as a sort of performance indicator. And yeah, it just from doing that, that was maybe even start of the summer. And I was racing junior junior Europeans in Athlone come July 4th and 10 years down the line I'm still doing it still still, do, still doing it and still doing very well and you know at the time as well there would have been was it Aileen Gav and, and Brian Keane would have been on the Olympic cycle at the time so you would have trained with those guys even though they would have been a little bit older than you they would have been uh, training for London and, and Brian obviously for Rio then as well I've been about that sort of crew quite a bit from the start and always had them to look up to which was good I probably rocked up in Athlone back in 2010 and wouldn't have knew them. I would have knew Aileen. So Aileen had came to my swim club in Lisburn. Just out of coincidence, I was at Lisburn and she had been told that it would have been a good club and local to her when she was starting in triathlon. So I was even just swimming when she started triathlon, training with Lisburn. And then Gavin, I would have knew who Gavin was and even my sister would have swam with his sisters and I, I would have knew him through that link. But then just yeah, fell fell in with them guys from that time onwards. Um, I went to Stirling University um, in the September of 2010 and Gavin was based there and he had been for a number of years and it was good to sort of have someone a bit from home, close there and even from third year onwards, Gavin was my landlord. I'd moved into his house, I think, um, I'd randomly rented the house two doors down, but not knowing where he had lived. And it was the year that he was traveling, chasing points for London. And um, yeah, we would have been bouncing in another house and sort of checking in on it while I was away. And then eventually we just moved in the, the year after. So yeah, Gav was even the landlord for a while. And then I guess I was on the sort of as a training partner for Brian and Aileen leading into Rio, which is probably where I've, I'd learned the most from those guys and um, it was a good good squad and we've 
plenty of training camps leading into Rio and being with those guys. And I guess it was a nice stepping stone because I knew I just wasn't at that level just yet. Um, but it showed me like the dedication and what it was required from them to to qualify and train and be ready for Rio. And it, it's definitely helped this Olympic cycle sort of not having the pressure of chasing that Rio qualification, but nearly seeing it on a day-to-day basis through those two, uh, Aileen and Brian. So explain to us how the, I suppose, the Olympic simulation or the Olympic cycle works in triathlon, because it is quite convoluted. You are the highest ranked Irish triathlete currently, isn't, isn't that correct? Yes, uh, give or take. Um, I think on the world rankings, myself and Colm would be quite close. So there is, um, there's a lot of sort of qualification. There's, there's a points list sort of for the world ranking. Um, but the main thing for the Olympics is there is Olympic qualification um, and a simulation. And so it's a, a separate points list. It opens two years out from the Olympics. It was supposed to be May two years out leading into the first of first weekend of May, just leading into the games here. So that two-year two cycle. And only WTS and World Cup races count for that qualification. So that's the only way that you can... Because it's the two highest levels of um, the IT racing, that's where you have to bank your points. And um, over that two-year cycle, you can carry an average of 12 races over the two. It'll be, say, six and six, five and seven, seven or five. We talk about a simulation rather than the list because... Some of the countries will have overfilled their quota. So with the relay teams guaranteeing two girls and two guys from each country. And then say, I think there's only so many countries can have a maximum of three athletes and the rest um, only two. So then that's how the simulation comes into play that anything overfilled quota will be taken out to work out how the top 55 guys on the start list and girls as well for the start list of uh, Tokyo 2021 now. So how does that work then for your qualification? Because you obviously were chasing points across the last, well, the last two years really up to before COVID kind of kicked in. So where were you in terms of of getting to Tokyo? Because it wasn't guaranteed, was it? It was because you could have gotten there, but then Khan could have gotten there as well. Yeah, um, I guess the thing is, like, I, I qualify the slot for Ireland. I don't qualify the slot for myself. There is one one of the slots that I think is known as a new flag slot, um, and that's what Carolyn would be holding for the girls. So that completely disagrees with what I had said with the simulation because it's the one athlete outside the simulation that's highest in the world ranking. So it, it's a it is a, a tricky slot that then if people fall out of the simulation they can take it. So you have to watch from both ends people coming down rather than jumping. My slot is the simulation. I think Con by if he was to qualify the slot wouldn't be able to do it the way I've done it in the simulation. He could do what Carolyn is currently doing on the new flag slot. But if I'm in the simulation he can't take it either because you can only take it if there's no one from your country. So I would have to fall out. He would have to take that from whoever's in it. Um, but at the same time then, you know, if it had went ahead and I was injured, then he could have took the slot anyway because I only 
qualify for the company and not for the uh, myself. It must be a bit of a head melt, is it? It must wreck your head, like trying it to is, figure it all out. I, and then there's no I've guarantee. Probably, yeah, it is. It's complicated. You need a degree. <laughs> I've probably said something that's wrong in there as well. But um, that's the gist of it. Um, literally, you nearly, I got to the point that I, I knew I was in the simulation. I knew I was close, floating around the 50 to 55 mark. Where nearly Gavin did the same, Brand did the same. We've never ever had a firm two feet in the door. Aileen was the one that we would, we would always be envious of that just got herself up there and was comfortable and just ticked off the races. And um, the guys just haven't learned yet. So um, I would have loved it to be sewn up. My first qualification period that first year was my best. Um, I came second, Krilovi Vi in a World Cup, and that just shot me up the rankings. And then again, the second qualification, I was eighth in the same place in Krilovi Vi, which definitely sort of has saved me a bit. But yeah, the second period just wasn't great. And um, I was probably just trying to make myself a bit more secure than January to May this year before everything started closing down. The difference is because I was in the simulation, one big race would have changed everything. Could have shot me up. That was the aim. I guess now... I'm, with one foot in the door and holding a slot, the selfish thing would be that the world stays rocky for sort of till next year and the qualification never opens again. And then it is what it is. And if the Olympics still goes ahead, then today I'm in the simulation. And I guess that would be the ideal scenario. No more stress of chasing points. And it is very stressful chasing points, even from a travel and a racing perspective. You talk there about six races and six races or five and seven and seven and five. But it's not just about rocking up to a race that's down the road from you because those races are spread all over the world. So you have all the logistics, you have the time travel, you have the settling in before, you know, and, and the race itself and all of that. So talk us through some of that, because for a lot of us, we'll never understand what it's like to be chasing points um, either for the world rankings or for an Olympic qualification. Yeah, no, it is stressful. I think I think it was maybe maybe last year I'd counted up uh, 49 flights and 20 individual countries and not counting like countries that doubled up on last year. 2008, they did two full laps of the world in one season. So like it's a lot of travel. Everybody thinks it's glamorous, but... Um, I think in the 2018 season, I was just, I've been looking at stats when I've been bored in lockdown. In 2018, from I left home on the 6th of January and until the grand final in Rotterdam, I think it was maybe the 2017 season, to the grand final in Rotterdam, I'd only spent 16 days in the country. And then now I've spent 17 weeks solid because of lockdown. So this is time I didn't think I would have at home. So I've actually really enjoyed it. It's been a novelty training at home, old roads, old training partners. So that that's one benefit that I've got out of it now, which I've enjoyed. But yeah, the, the chasing points, it's not the most glamorous thing. Um, like not only are you picking races and, and sort of doing them, but you also have in the back of your mind, have you picked the right one? Is there people that are trying to steal your slot from other countries? Are they maybe going to more obscure races with easier fields? Do you know what course suits you and what course have you performed on as well? The biggest thing that hindered me last year, I was going really well in the middle of the season. I was at Antwerp World Cup on cobbles and um, breakaway at 10 up the road. And... Um, 
came around the corner, got my handlebar wrapped around in sort of security tape, and it didn't snap and pulled me over and I snapped the frame in half and couldn't continue the race. And the boys that I were with just rolled on to the podium. So, you know, that that could have sewn up the qualification that day um, if everything had went to plan, but it didn't. And, then, and Russell, how do you deal with the disappointment of something like that? Because that's something that was completely outside of your control. Yeah, um, sometimes you just, I don't know. If I actually look back at how rocky it's been at times, you know, I'm, I'm, I might let it affect me more. But, you know, I guess for those two years, the only aim is the Olympics. It's like if I was to worry that, you know, that I crashed in Antwerp and went from maybe having... I don't a top ten probably is was an, an easy result to get that day out of the position that I'd been once I was on the bike to go from that to get zero points and a broken frame and fly to Montreal three days later on a on an old bike that had pulled out of the garage and tried to race up in time. Like if I'd let it affect me then, you know, it was all over. Like I, I had to just keep the ball rolling. So it's more just keeping the head steady and just you know there is an end point of or a goal that you want to get to and and that's nearly I've just knuckled down and just kept going no matter what cards are dealt. What has been your highlights so far in terms of racing and not just in terms of I suppose your highest finish but the the place or the race that's meant the most to you so far? I guess thinking even back after putting that post up about Athlone for that to be the first race and I probably people probably think I'm rubbish on a bike because I'm, I crashed that day. Um, <laughs> I'm but, sensing a bit of a pattern here, yeah, Russell. It might just help if I stay upright. Maybe that's what I'm doing wrong. Maybe we night. need to. Do we need to get you a set of stabilizers? Yeah, maybe. Athlone was amazing, and even the run around the course where I was further back after the crash and stuff, and the atmosphere. Like, it was just electric and definitely like I, w- I would love another race in Ireland before my career's over or I would definitely make sure that I would bring one back even after I'd finished triathlon if it was possible that that's a highlight and then a lot of the races in the UK have been um standout ones and it's more for the atmosphere Glasgow Commonwealth Games was huge because it was riding that Brownlee wave of post London but then even Leeds in 2016, that was the first year that Leeds had the WTS and it was on the Brownies home course and um, I was in a good position and you're coming in, it's a long sort of split transition. So you come from the lake and you maybe 17k on the bike before you get to the city centre and you don't see much spectators and you're just making sure you're in the pack and the packs are forming and it's a bit stressful. And we just turned onto the city centre course into... Um, the grandstand and the blue carpet and I've never just hit a wall of noise like that day that you're just everyone was out there for like the Brownleys on their home course but like they were cheering they were going mad and that course was maybe three to five deep at at points and like it's something that we don't really experience that often in triathlon that sort of almost stadium atmosphere and that's the time when sort of the hairs in the back of your neck stand up just turning a corner into an atmosphere like that so those sort of times are sort of stand out for me sort of out of all the races I've done. Do you ever pinch yourself when you're standing on the start line with the likes of the Brownleys or some of the world champions and just go jeepers like how how did I get here? Yeah um at the at the start you sort of you look around and you sort of see who, who you've been beside and 
you know, like a Gomez or a Brownlee or guys like that and that you have followed and even before I was racing WTS, like those were the guys you were just watching week in, week out and then you're sort of standing beside them and it's daunting at the start but it is part of that. Like if that's the way you sort of feel, you're gonna they're gonna beat you or you they're just gonna be nowhere near you um if that's how you view them. So you nearly just have to isolate yourself that they are just other athletes and um once you start racing with them i think it it probably demeans them a little because they are like some of them aren't human like the the ability um but you just um you have to just believe that they're just human beside you and that on your given day you can you can stick it to them so um that's just really how you have to view them and race them so considering you've come from a swimming background into triathlon um, mm. and you've fallen off the bike a couple of times, um, what would be your favourite discipline, the swim, bike or run? Um, I think it's the bike now. Um, when I stay upright, I'm actually okay on a bike. <laughs> um, and even like last year in, in Leeds, it's a course that suits me and I, like, I do enjoy the atmosphere, as I said. And I was off the front with Alistair and it like we were, it was maybe only two out of the 11 laps or two or three out of the 11 laps on the Leeds course but to be solo with him and off off the front of the uh, like leading the WTS and just on that bike and you can sort of pick the lines that you want and um, that was probably one of the most enjoyable so no I, I do enjoy the bike and even training wise I would prefer the bike more. I have a good group of cyclists from Bambridge, guys that um, they would follow triathlon and cycling and will know, like Mark Diner, who's qualified for the Madison and the track, Molly Taggart, our Ross stage winner and yellow jersey holder and stuff. So it's a good caliber of guys up here that I'm training day in, day out with. And, you know, it's even that would be my social circle now that when I'm home in the off seasons, because it's guys that it, are in the same boat as me and it, it's nice like maybe my friends from school or uni have got jobs and I've maybe moved out of the town but these are guys that are doing the same thing chasing races around the world for majority of the year and coming back sort of November December time so I'm lucky to sort of have people like that sort of in the town and, and close to me. Does it get lonely doing what you're doing Russell because you are traveling quite a lot and you probably do spend quite a bit of time on your own but does it get lonely in doing all of that yes you're chasing a dream and it probably takes up you know 99.9 percent of your day in terms of what you're doing and what you're thinking but the the, the downtime the quiet time does it does it affect you at all or, or do you enjoy being on your own and, and not being part of a big big crew or a big big squad or you know because in Ireland we don't have the big squads of people no. racing and training together unlike say in the States or the UK where they've got big triathlon teams yeah um no it definitely is lonely and it's definitely hard and that's probably something that I did struggle with the past couple of years I took for granted like how amazing it was leading into Rio and the setup that we had would travel constantly with Brian and Aileen and we had a physio and a coach and that was every single race leading into the Olympics was fully supported and we had those guys and it was good fun and it was nearly just relaxed at the same time. So I went from that and the two the two athletes retired um, and I was maybe, I moved to a group in America um, and I was training with them and um, that was okay for training wise but then you'd maybe go to a race solo or they would then go and stay with the americans in a different hotel and i was maybe in 
separate or stuff so you might go from then training for three months and having a good group and never thinking about it but then the four four days leading into the race you're by yourself looking at four walls of a hotel room and so like that's tricky and then you have to keep your head then and not let that silence then sort of creep in leading into a race because it's the one time that you don't want your head to to be affected by that but um i guess the the past year it, it it's been a lot better i have parted with the the group in america i came home i was training with my own sort of swim club who james edgar is part of so he was kicking about a bit and i could run with him and different stuff as well and then even it was nice although it was cut short just before all this but even to be in florida with con and james and and have sort of Stephen Delaney out there and different stuff. And it was starting to feel like it was all coming back together and that we were getting a bit of a an Irish crew crew together and at races and it was picking up. But it definitely gets it it is hard and it gets lonely and the fact, you know, I'm twenty eight, I'm out of university, you know, you're all over the world, everybody's like, you know, no girlfriends or whatever. But there's times that I, I haven't been in the same place for more than two weeks and um, you know it's nothing like that's even possible that you just sort of you nearly have to just look at it selfishly and then see what the goal is and just keep the head down and you know that it's an amazing experience that I don't take for granted and that that I never u- use the word sacrifice really because nothing's a sacrifice it's always you know that's what I've chosen to do and like I still enjoy it but at the same time it doesn't mean that parts of it isn't aren't hard. Yeah, you mentioned there about how it's it's not glamorous. It certainly isn't glamorous living out of a suitcase and it looks like it's this jet set lifestyle, but this is your career. Um, you know, it's your job. It's the same as everybody else's nine to five, Monday to Friday. It's just a, a different variation of it, yeah. um, albeit you're working your socks off in a different way to, to the rest of us that, are, that are, are not full-time athletes. So what was it like being home for the past 17 weeks? Because you mentioned there's 16 days in one year and then suddenly it's 17 weeks. And um, is it a busy household that you're in? Have you been able to, to enjoy some of the quiet time, but also, um, you know, was there any family feuds or anything like that going on in the house? Um, no, it's actually been um, it's been quite quiet. I live with my mum here in Banbridge, and literally two hundred meters down the lane um, would be my my granny, and that's why we sort of moved out here. So she's been sort of self isolating, and she hasn't left the house longer than I've been back. But it's been nice then that I've been close, and that I can even when mum's been working, that you know pop into the garden, have a cup of tea, run errands for different stuff. So that's been the enjoyable part, sort of the past while. At the start, it was fairly quiet. I was in the sling, couldn't drive. I literally just put my feet up, basically slept for two weeks straight, whether it was just um, recovering or the shock of the, the injury and stuff. So at the start, when lockdown was probably the strictest, even though we weren't as strict as, as down south, I didn't leave the house. I think I'd left the house twice in the first six weeks and they were both for x-rays. I hadn't been in a shop or anything. So, um, no, family's been great and sort of looked after me and probably a bit spoilt as well and not having to do much or um, probably played the sling and the the one arm a bit bit hard at the very start and got out of doing a lot of things. But, um, no, it's been quite quiet. 
So they were probably delighted to get you home and get you into one place for longer than a week at a time. Yep. So I'm just still trying to ride that wave um, <laughs> because I think it is the longest. Like my mom has had me back in, in probably the 10 years since going to university in 2010. So it's even a novelty for her. So at least we're still civil to each other and no, we're getting on really well and nothing's an issue. So it's quite good. <laughs> That's really good because um, I'm sure there's plenty of people who've had uh, lots of um, turmoil or, or family feuds in houses when suddenly yeah. there's like, you know, from every perspective, from the mums and dads or from the kids coming back to the houses or whatever. So looking to the future then, of course, so we are looking at Tokyo, you know, what what's a typical training day or a typical day like for you now as we move into the next phase of restrictions being lifted and are the swimming pools open up by where you are at the moment or are you focusing on on staying in the open water for the most part and, and being out and about on your bike and running from the like elite capacity when some of the pools got open i think the nsc i had permission to travel down to the nsc for that but it's you know it would still be a 90 minute journey there and um, just to get into the pool it was still going to be strict so i chose not not to start that when when i was allowed and um, i think today banger is the first pool to be open up up here but at the same time then it's just logistics and politics and the swimmers have got access but then because triathlon's not swimming yet even i might be at a higher level than some of the swimmers that are in there is trying to organize you know how i can get access there but at the same time you know that's maybe a 45 minute drive but it's a, a bit more doable than to fit training around so i think the main thing would be hopefully get into Bangor soon to try and get into a swimming pool if we can get access. And then bike and run, probably the same as I've been doing. I, I might sort of tail some of the biking back down because I will be building the swimming up just to level it off, not to be doing too much. But um, I think, yeah, the next couple of weeks, these, we are starting to get races penciled in. European champs got confirmed in Tartu, Estonia last weekend of august so that's a potential target and um, but then you have to weigh up is it worth traveling is it safe to travel are we going to be quarantined if we come home so is there any point me training flat out getting back into the pool getting fitness up to then race one race and be told oh you're quarantining for 14 days so you can't get back in the pool for another 14 days so until those questions are answered i'm just assuming that I'm going to start racing sort of soon and just end up trying to get into the best shape possible. In terms of nutrition and things like that as well, you know, obviously it changes when you're at downtime versus when mm. you're when you're racing. So talk us through some of the fueling with regards to keeping your performance at that high level. Yeah, I guess I just eat a lot all the time. Like most athletes, um, I wouldn't be the strictest on my dad. Like I'm not going to... You know, if there's something I, I want or that I crave, you know, I'm maybe there's days I'm burning upwards of 5,000 calories a day. So there's guys I used to train with in America and they used to always say the saying, if the furnace is hot enough, it'll burn. And <laughs> I love I was, that. If the furnace is hot enough, it'll burn. Yeah. So that probably justifies a few too many sort of things that you probably shouldn't be eating. But um, no. I would just, the main thing I focus on is being fueled for each training session and recovery after. So the first aim is just timing wise for sessions. 
and that's probably what I didn't realize when I first started um, triathlon was actually, you know, leading into the session when I should be eating and then, you know, every, everybody's heard of the 20 minute window or 30 minutes afterwards and, you know, eating after that. So it's more just being fueled pre and post session and having enough. Um, like I, I don't actually, even when it comes around the sessions, I would work my meal times around my sessions because I'm not actually much of a snacker. Like, I wouldn't just nibble all day long. I'd rather eat more substantially. Um, just the way, it's just how I feel more comfortable. Um, I never really feel full snacking. So I would work my meal times around the training sessions, and it's nice nearly having three sessions that you can sort of have that time of the day. And, yeah, I've just focused on being fueled pre and post, and that's nearly what I worry about the most. So you're drinking a cup of tea now. Um, did you have any biscuits with the tea? No, I haven't. That was a, I was a rush in the town before here, and then out, and I was just having a cup of tea to just chill on the sofa. But if you were to have a biscuit with the tea, what would it be? I think there's some sitting over in the counter that I haven't lifted, and I think they're chocolate hobnobs. Oh, you I'll can't beat that. a chocolate hobnob. Yeah, oh, yum. A- Russell, have you always wanted to go to the Olympics? What age were you when you, you know, decided, like, this is the path I want to go down and I want to get to the Olympics? I'd say probably Sydney 2000 was probably the, the sort of turning point, and at the time, you know, I was starting to enjoy the swimming. My sister was getting quite good and I was seeing her like win medals and stuff. And there was the time when, you know, Ian Thorpe at Sydney maybe was in his fancy swimsuits. And you had sort of, I can just remember like we used to have a caravan and be down there in the summer and the Olympics being played. And um, then even Commonwealth Games and different stuff. And it is nice to have that sort of even every two years but between the Olympics for us up here and it, just that major games ex- experience is just it's just always appealed to me and seeing it on the TV and but it probably was around 2000 I was maybe just turned eight and um, probably just seeing the, the guys in the swimming pool like Ian Thorpe competing that that probably sparked the the fire and then yeah I guess it was never like oh I'm going for swimming or anything you know that's even moving into triathlon it was like I just for some reason always wanted to compete at sport at the highest level so when swimming wasn't really going taking me the places I wanted it to like I I sort of always looked at university as a stepping stone of to really lift um like athletic performance with being up up north a lot of people would go across the UK for university and when You'd sort of heard of places like Lothborough and Bath were sort of sports centre of excellence and Stirling was a sports centre of excellence for like swimming and triathlon in Scotland and stuff. So it was always an aim to sort of go to a university like that and, and, and get a degree but sort of train at the same time because that's nearly what all the swimmers had done leading into sort of Sydney and Beijing and different things in the UK and it was just something that appealed to me. Do you put an awful lot of pressure on yourself? Probably quite a bit, yeah. Um, probably more than other people would put pressure on me. Probably even this being at home this time has actually nearly been nice to sort of chill and actually bump into people that I wouldn't normally see, that you don't even realise are following and, and that are nearly so impressed with what you're doing that they actually take a step back and, and, and see the support from home and in the local area that you realise that, like, you know, 
it's only really me that's worried if I make it or not because there's so many people that are actually impressed with what's been done so far. So like that's one of the benefits of coming home and all this, just this different situation that I couldn't have experienced. Um, but no, it's it's been nice that even it's given me a breather in this Olympic cycle that um, you can just step back. And I know sort of will be stressful chasing points and stuff in the future, but at the minute, like, it's stress-free and I'm enjoying training and enjoying being home and um, just in such a really good environment. So, yeah, uh, I, I know I'm the only one that puts this, the pressure on myself and hopefully then even it is a different mindset then going forward when the races start kicking off again. And looking beyond Tokyo, looking beyond the Olympics, have you thought far beyond that about what you might do with your career? Will you do what Alistair Brownlee and a few others have done and step up to longer distance racing? Or what do you think will you do? I think if I go to one Olympics, I'd quite like to go to two. You know, so the aim would be that I'd maybe, even the fact this has been postponed, like the next one's only going to be three years away. It's only going to be one year without any qualification. Do you know, it's not a big big ask. Um, I'm still only going to have tipped into my 30s for a second, um, second Olympic Games by that stage. So still young. And um, I would definitely dabble at 70.3, sort of between the two Olympics, um, to then definitely push forward for, for Kona, sort of in the years after. If there was any race in the world that you could win, other than the Olympics at the moment, what would it be? At the minute, I'd love to win any WTS. When you're on that circuit, you know, there's not actually that many people that have actually won one. Um, but if there was a race at home, like an, an international IT race at home to win in Ireland, I think would be amazing. And I think Brian did a, even a European Cup leading into Athlone the year before the European champs. There's just pictures of him doing that. And it's just to, to win at home, I guess, is is probably just something that you just can't be matched when you know that 90% of the support are for you anyway, never mind just um, cheering you because you've won. We mentioned Aileen and Gavin and Brian, and you mentioned Ian Thorpe as well as, as being, you know, somebody that you would have looked up to as, as a kid. And then <laughs> later on, you would have trained with our, our Irish triathlete Olympians. But who else would be an inspiration for you, Russell, in terms of athletes around the world or even closer to home that you'd look at and just go, geez, I've massive respect for what they've achieved? Um. I'm not actually too sure because before you like listed off those people, you know, I've always just been learning and looking from those guys that you're not ever sort of, I very rarely put someone like on a pedestal that you're sort of thinking and, and idolizing. But I think any anybody that ever does sport at the highest level, you know, I've always been in awe from or in awe with. I guess even... You know, going back to Aileen, someone that actually came to my swim club, I was maybe only 16, just swimming, um, and to sort of see her dedication, it was the first person that I'd sort of seen in person do that daily grind and then go away to these international races. And that was even at the start of her career before she was really just starting to dominate. But to actually see that in person was probably a big stepping stone for me that um, it is just a normal person in your normal swimming pool, but doing what you want to do. And it just made it that bit more real and that bit more achievable. 
And if you were to give one bit of advice to somebody who's listening today who maybe wants to take the step into triathlon or, you know, maybe has a son or a daughter who potentially could make it onto the Talent ID programme, what advice would you give to somebody starting out who maybe has aspirations to be um, an athlete at the highest level or to race at the Olympics? Um, it is just nearly to always have fun um, and to always do it. And although we talked about like the pressure and putting the pressure on myself and different stuff, I've never, I've never not enjoyed it. Like I've never thought this being a burden or, you know, I maybe put the pressure on like what I want to achieve, but that's on a grand scheme of things on a daily basis, rolling out the door, doing sessions. It's all just been for fun and it's been completely stress-free and it's never been an issue. And I think that's the main thing that sort of makes it achievable and makes it doable because if you ever, you know, stuck in the bed or just looking out the window and you're like, you don't want to do it, then like it's not going to happen. And if it does, it's not going to be done to the level that it probably needs to be done. So it is just about having fun, not putting pressure on yourself and just even soaking up all the experiences. Like I, I could never have asked for what I've experienced or achieved so far. Um, the amount of countries that I've visited, I do have to pinch myself when I think of, of all the places I've been, the people I've met and the people I've raced against. So like the potential is there for anyone. Like I'm no different and um, I've just sort of stuck at it and just had fun through the whole time. And um, yeah, it is all just just comes down to that and if you weren't following the dream to go to the olympics you weren't following a career as an elite triathlete what would you be doing i guess i did my degree in primary education i'm not fully qualified because i postponed my probationary year which was mandatory in scotland for the one year after but i've got my degree as a as a primary teacher and um i guess i would have just went into teaching I always liked the variety, probably why I've ended up in triathlon more than a single sport. That's why I nearly chose primary because I didn't really want to pick a subject. But it would definitely then, I would still have a big sports focus, whether that would just be within the one school that I would have been based or that even went into coaching on the side or something. I would definitely have been very sports orientated regardless. But um, I'd say the day-to-day job probably would have been a primary school teacher. Very good. Inspiring a nation um, as an athlete and then inspiring uh, the youngsters coming through through sport as well as a teacher. Maybe we'll see you do both Maybe. down the line Yeah, it'll many be a, years it'll to be, come. It would be a big shock to go from this to teaching a class of 30 kids. So, and especially, <laughs> I, I don't envy any of the people that I even trained with or whatever, dealing with how schools are going to reopen, so... But yeah, it's there on the back burner if it's needed. If it's ever needed. And I'm sure you'd be a fantastic role model and teacher. Well, thank you so much uh, for joining me on the show today. I nope. wish you the very best of luck with all of your training and getting out of lockdown, getting that collarbone right as rain and yep. uh, hopefully seeing you on the start line in Tokyo in 2021. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Thanks again for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget you can get in touch with any feedback or guest suggestions by emailing me on trytalkingsport at gmail.com. Yes, that's try with an I, not a Y. Connect with me on social media across Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. Pop by and say hi and let me know what you think of the show. If you are new to Try Talking Sport, please do check out some of our previous episodes. You will be impressed and inspired by our wonderful guests. Until next time, wash your hands, stay safe and thanks for tuning in.